Well, let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we are delighted, Lord, that we can be back in your word in the scriptures. I ask, Lord, that you would simply help us to see the gravity of the sacrifice that uh, was being asked of this patriarch, Abraham, that we would understand the gravity of your work in the midst of that, the significance of it. On top of that, Father, that we would see how much you love us. You love us so much, you don't leave us to ourselves, Lord. You love us so much that you don't leave us as we are. You love us so much that you are not content simply to save us and then to leave us in the state in which we're in, but you care enough to test us, to try us, to grow us. You care enough about our sanctification that you desire to see your children be productive and fruitful and devoted to you above all things. And that is the key here. Above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we come back to the book of Hebrews and we are going systematically through this book and we come upon a passage of scripture that is so precious and and so um just so meaningful really for the church even historically speaking this act of faith that we have in front of us here Abraham his offering up of Isaac historically speaking and throughout the history of the church going all the way back to the old testament the rabbinical tradition the the, the, the second temple uh, a literature going all the way up to the time of Christ was filled with uh, writings regarding this episode in Abraham's life, that this episode was the most significant uh, time in Abraham's life when God put Abraham in the fire, in the crucible of his testing over his life. And you know what? This passage reminds us that our God often calls for radical obedience in the life of his people. And again, this is one of Scripture's most intense scenes. And so there's a lot of emotion that is attached with this with this narrative, with this account of Abraham. A lot is invested here. And we're going to see that hopefully throughout the exposition of this passage. But first, let me begin with a general consideration that as God seeks to grow us in our faith, there is a cost of discipleship that we must be ready to count. That is to say that following Christ, even as Christ Himself taught, will encompass sacrifice. It will encompass a radical sense of obedience, a, a call, a radical commitment to God's demands over our lives and a willingness, brothers and sisters, a willingness to obey God at any expense, regardless of what it costs us, whether we suffer ridicule or self-abandonment or, or self-abasement or scoffing or mocking or persecution. Paul says, as you know very well, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's emblematic of the fact that in following Jesus, we will suffer many things. God calls us to 
pick up our cross. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 14, if you don't pick up your cross, if you are not willing to follow me on the Calvary road, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Matter of fact, Jesus made it very clear that nothing is off limits in following Christ. Nothing. It it may cost you everything. And I've talked to enough Christians to know that, in fact, it did. It cost them dearly to follow Christ. The loss of their spouse, their loss of family, their loss of friendship, their loss of employment, their loss of income, you name it. That's why Jesus said, if you love mother or father or or wife or children or anything else more than me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. If you love your own life, you are not worthy to be my disciple. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, it says they overcame by the word of their testimony for they did not love their own lives to the point of death. They were willing, in other words, to part with life in this world in order to stay obedient to God, to His word and to His commands. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing in this episode of faith, this, 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 this profile of the patriarch Abraham, a test. And it is a, a call to a radical type of lifestyle. Now I want to point out three things. Because when God is trying our faith, testing our faith, purifying our faith, several things can be expected of us. Number one. God calls us to a radical obedience to His commands or to radically obey His commands. You see this in this verse. Look again with me at verse 17, the radical nature of our obedience to God here. He says, by faith, when he was tested, Abraham, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Abraham offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. So much here for our instruction. But within this call to obey, God was also testing him. Of course, this obedience was radical because it was his only begotten son that God was asking him to offer up. Now, Understand that looking back now, we can see like, okay, we understand what's going on here. Abraham being asked to offer up Isaac. But what are the depths of that? What is behind that and the meaning of that? There are so many things to be considered. It was also radical because God had already promised according to his own word to fulfill his promise through Isaac. So in one sense, what we're saying is that this demand that God made upon Abraham, it defied all logic on every every ground, in every way. Genesis chapter 17, prior to this in Genesis 22, by the way, Genesis 22 is where this historical account takes place. But Genesis chapter 17, verse 21 says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. You see, God had already bound himself by an oath. He had given an oath that his covenant purposes with God or or with his people, God would fulfill through Isaac. But here now we're being confronted, or at least Abraham was in that moment. He was being confronted with the possibility of everything being lost. 
Because if he obeys God and sacrifices his only son, then how is God going to, to, to fulfill his promise? When God calls us to obey in this way, the very first thing that comes to mind is, are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust in his character? Are we going to trust in God to be faithful to us? Are we going to trust that God is faithful, as Scripture says, to a thousand generations? Are we going to question God? Are we going to question His wisdom? Know this, brothers and sisters, when God calls upon us to be radically obedient, we can never forget that we have a radically faithful God. And this is something that is set forth all over the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse nine, he is faithful to a thousand generations, generations. Uh, Psalm 105 verse eight also says the same thing. God is faithful to a thousand generations and every epic and every time period to every generation. God is faithful to his people. We also reminded that part of Abraham's tested testing required radical obedience because of what he was giving up. Although he uh, or although we will never be asked, in a sense, to sacrifice our sons and daughters on a physical altar so as to slay them, God does ask us to lay them on the metaphorical altar of sacrifice. I mean, you think about missionaries. I remember being at an airport with a missionary family who had eight kids standing in the airport and, oh, they were getting ready to commit their lives to go to Africa to a dangerous part of the world with all their children, including their babies and their little toddlers, and were standing in the airport in LAX, and you should have seen the face or the look of uh, on the faces of some of the people working there as they could not believe that a, an American family would leave the comforts of America, take their children, put them into the remotest places of planet Earth, subject them to disease, to to to, to uh, lawlessness, to the the threat of persecution, to the threat of 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 uh, of, of food poisoning and everything else. I'm thinking of. Trying to think of things that come with going to the third world. I mean, I just recently visited Mexico. I got such bad food poisoning. I tell you what, it took me a month to get over it. And I actually went to this exact location in Africa where they went. And let me tell you, it is a dangerous place. There are poisonous snakes. There are black mambas. Uh, you know, we, when we arrived there at uh, Kiriandongo, they gave us a they gave us a briefing on what to avoid while you are there. Uh, they, they show you pictures of the caterpillars that you cannot step on because the moment you step on them before you probably make it out of the outhouse, it is too late. There are, there are, there are, uh, poisonous snakes that within 10 seconds upon being bitten, you are on your way to your last breath. There are, there are malaria ridden mosquitoes that are flying all over the jungle in which we were in. And there is danger after danger after danger after danger. Matter of fact, I remember going there and getting so physically ill that the Nationals were had a bet going whether or not I was going to survive. Uh, here I am, so you know how that went. But people mocked when seeing this family heading to Africa with all their kids. 
Something motivated their obedience and they esteemed something as more valuable than the safety of their own children by obeying God in this area. God will often do this to us. He will often call us to a life of radical obedience beyond all human comprehension, beyond anything that makes sense to anyone around us, but we do it because we know who we are obeying. Abraham knew that he was obeying the God of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of the stars, the one who had covenanted with him in the night as he appeared to him and gave him his promise. And so for Abraham, he was willing to suffer whatever ridicule, whatever, whatever turmoil, whatever, whatever sacrifice he had to offer to God, he was ready to perform it. The whole thing was an amazing act of faith. And we too, we might be asked by God to put our lives metaphorically on the altar. Taken from another angle, remember uh, that we may be tempted to question God's wisdom in doing any of this. Uh, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the one from whom Abraham's promised posterity was to come, as it says there in verse 17. In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Surely Abraham was tempted to call God's character into question, asking, why would God seemingly ask me to do something that flies in the face of God's own purpose? At least as much as I understand it. God calls us to live with a commitment to trust in His mysterious providence and sovereignty even when He calls us to do something that defies all logic. Recently, I was in Kentucky and uh, I stayed with a wonderful Christian family. Um, and and, and uh, they, they recently adopted a precious, beautiful little girl. And um, they invested time and money and energy and their emotions... And they, they poured their affection into this little child and adopted her. Since the wife couldn't have children, they decided to adopt. And it was the perfect situation. He was African American, she was a white woman, and their baby was a mixed child. And it just, it was the perfect picture to the puzzle. It was, it was the way that you would expect them to design it if it's up to them. And you would never think that a family who had done such a noble thing in going through the motions, going through the trouble, spending the money, the time, and the energy, you would never expect for God then to put them through the trial of leukemia shortly after adopting her. But she did. She was diagnosed with leukemia, and they are still undergoing that trial. And let me tell you, their perseverance was convicting. Their joy was infectious they had a total 100 percent trust and resignation upon god they were trusting god in their their trial they were they were not questioning god they were not wavering at the promises of god they were not questioning his goodness but instead they were simply submitting themselves to god's radical commands upon their lives now of course The key to all of this, brothers and sisters, is that it was God who was testing Abraham. And you see that from the verb that's used there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that Greek word tested is a 
uh, in the passive voice, which, which most uh, commentators will point out to you, that this is a clear instance of a divine passive. In other words, God is the one putting Abraham through the test. But if the test took Abraham by surprise, he would have to remember that it was God's sovereignty at work. And that's what we have to remember for our own, our own trials, our own tests as it were. We have to remember that God is sovereign in the midst of it and His purposes for our lives are being accomplished. It is not blind fate. It is not chance. It is not necessarily a result of sin that God puts you through a test, but it is to manifest His glory ultimately. This is the same Greek word, by the way, that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where the Bible says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. A call for self-examination. And the word literally, the word literally means to put something on trial so as to see the quality of a thing. And that's exactly what's going on in the life of Abraham. He was put on trial so as to see the quality of Abraham's faith. This was a test to try him, to test him, to reveal whether or not Abraham genuinely feared God. Now, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22 and maybe put your finger there. We'll come back and forth a little bit here. But I just wanted to read that, in fact... He did fear God. He did pass the test. Look at what it says. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 12. I had to resist the temptation of doing an exposition of the entire chapter, Genesis 22, because that would take us in a whole other direction for the entire time. But listen to what it says. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on, on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took his knife to slay his son, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son. In the context of God's radical demands upon our life, another thing is called, another thing is demanded of us, and that is that we radically trust in God's power. You see the logic of that if you go back to Hebrews 11. You remember, if you look closely at the text of Hebrews 11, you understand that verse 18 in the passage is actually parenthetical. That is to say, uh, that's sort of like in parentheses. Verse 19 resumes the thought of verse 17. So read it with me now, leaving verse 18 out for a moment. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, verse 19, we could say for he considered that God is able to raise even uh, to raise people even from the dead, even from the dead. So for Abraham, as God made his radical demands, as he was tested, as his faith was in the fire, he had to test, he, excuse me, he had to trust in God's power. Not only, therefore, does God call upon us 
to obey His commands, but now He calls upon us to trust in His power. And there's every evidence, turn with me to Romans 4, there's every evidence that suggests that for the, for, for, for Abraham, he never really wavered at the promises of God. He never really wavered in unbelief. He wasn't really shaken. He was always resolved to do it. That doesn't mean that obedience was easy, by the way, and notice that. Notice that. It doesn't mean that just because you are faithful, just because you will obey, just because you do not doubt, that you can expect that your obedience will be easy. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was, it was strenuous in every way. It was arduous in every way. But he did it anyway. Because, as Romans chapter 4 is going to tell us here, verse 19, Abraham seemingly never really wavered at the promise of God. He always believed. Look at what it says. Without becoming weak in faith, this is Romans 4.19, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. You see, this is where God wants to get us. When God tests us and puts us in the fire, in the crucible, the furnace of His trying work in our lives, He's trying to get us to the point of total divestment where we divest ourselves of self-reliance and self-independence, where we see that we do not have the resources within ourselves. We do not have the strength. We do not have the power. We do not have the ability. Has God ever brought you to that place where you feel that you're not able? You're in a trial. You're in a test. Maybe a physical affliction. Maybe a season in the marriage. Maybe a season in the child rearing where you feel like, I can't do it. I can't turn the ship. I'm not able to correct this on my own anymore. God must act or I'm doomed. I I tell you, there is such a, a sweet sanctifying power in being brought to the place where you come to the settled conclusion that unless God does it, I am out of answers. I have no hope. That's where God wants us to be. By the way, He always wants us to be in that place where He alone is our hope. In that place where He alone, His power, His omnipotence, it is, it is His resources that are on display here. It is His glory. Everything is done by His Word, His will, His sovereign power in our lives. As I've said before, independence, bad. Dependence, good. And that's where God wants us to always be. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 just to see maybe another tangible expression, I think, of the very same principle. A principle of total resignation to the power and the ability of God. Maybe you haven't been brought to this point. Maybe you don't think you've ever been to this point, but you know who was? Paul. The Apostle Paul could resonate so sharply with the life of Abraham at this point because Paul himself and his 
companions were brought once to this point. I would say probably for Paul, many, many times brought to this point. I would say he ended his life being brought to this point. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, we find Paul reminiscing about his past in an Abrahamic fashion. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction that came upon us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see that? God brought Abraham and Paul to the point where their hope and what they could hope in was altogether beyond the scope of this world so that their hope had to stay and had to be found in the powers of the age to come. It was only resurrection power that could, that could give him hope at this point. I would say our whole lives have to be brought to, our whole Christianity is built on this exact hope that when you and I die like a dog in the grave, God is not gonna leave us down in the grave, in the, He is not gonna allow us to undergo decay as it were, but He is going to, like Christ, raise us up again to newness of life. If we don't have that hope, What does Paul say? We're finished. If we don't have resurrection hope, we're toast. What did we do all this for? Why did we put up with each other? (laughs) Why did we go to church on Sunday? Why did we give our money? Why did we study? Why did we pray all those hours? Why did we read? Why do theologians lose their sight? Why do you, why do you get Carpal tunnel from writing sermons and back and neck problems. What are you doing all that for? If you do not have resurrection hope, you don't have hope. You don't have hope. You are in the world without God, without hope. But that's not who we are. And maybe the last thing that we can gain from at least this passage, at least our time together, is going to be that God also causes, therefore, not only to have a radical obedience to His command, not only to have radical trust in His power, and not, and, and thirdly, also, therefore, to have a radical view of God's redemptive purposes. And I take that just from this uh, passage where this little side note is kind of thrown in there. Did you see it? It says, He considered God able to raise people even from the dead, from which... He also received him, i.e. Isaac, back as a type. And actually, the Greek word there for type is actually the Greek word parabole, parable. The reality is, though, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, I'm trying to think of it now, but in Hebrews chapter 9, maybe come and see me for it later, this exact Greek word is used to speak of typology. 
And that's why if you have an NASB translation, it says he re- received him back not as a parable, but he received him back as a type. In other words, as a foreshadowing. Right? What is a parable? A parable is, is a story. It's a short illustration to try to magnify some great truth. Whereas a type is actually a depiction or a picture that speaks of something greater than itself happening or being fulfilled in the future. And that's exactly what you find with Isaac. Isaac became the typological son who was, as it were, brought back from the dead. In other words, if, if you don't, this is what it's saying. Isaac was as good as dead. And, and, and had not God delivered him, he would in fact have died. So therefore, when Isaac came back to Abraham, he receives him back in typological fashion, speaking of the resurrection itself. As a matter of fact, if you look at the account of Genesis chapter 22, the whole thing is loaded with typology, I would say. Abraham took his typological son. He made him carry the typological wood on his back up the typological mountain, laid him on the typological altar, took the typological knife into his hands, was about to perform the typological sacrifice, believed in the typological resurrection, only to be stopped by the angel of the Lord who provided his own typological lamb or assured him of that, through the typological ram that was caught in the thicket. Genesis 22 is loaded with typology, and it's all a glorious, wonderful picture of the gospel. How is it that you and I are ever going to get off that altar? We all deserve to be slain. That's the point. Isaac deserved to be slain. We look at this and we think, oh, why would he do that to Isaac? I mean, this is so sad. Yeah, but Isaac is a sinner just like you and I. So if God wants to take a sinner and use him to slay him for an illustration, God can do it and be just. The reality is that the only way that you and I will escape death and being slain is if a substitute comes to take our place. And that is what the... You know, you think of a ram caught in the thicket. What do you think he would be like? Panicked, desperate, trying to get free because he knows he's an easy prey for his adversaries. Jesus was the ram in the thicket. The difference is Jesus did not go free. And the real difference is Jesus voluntarily put himself in harm's way. The testing of Abraham should finally, brothers and sisters, assure us that God's purposes will be done and that he loves us so much that he's willing to do anything to show us that. Number one, if you go to Genesis 22, verse 15, you will see that after Abraham passes the test, what happens is that there is a reaffirmation of the covenant. After he passed the test, after the angel of the Lord tells Abraham, now I know that you fear God because you have not even kept back your only son. What happens? Then the covenant is reaffirmed. It says, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, I have not, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It was on the occasion of Abraham's trial, his obedience, that the gospel promises of God go forward. Last, I mentioned the love of God. You say, well, how in the world do you get the love of God from Genesis 22 where God asks Abraham to do what he asked him to do? Maybe I can illustrate this through an example of church history. John Bunyan. You know who John Bunyan is? John Bunyan wrote the second of the Bible best-selling Christian book of all time, Pilgrim's Progress. And he wrote it in prison on a series of milk cartons. And the reason why he was in prison was because they told him not to preach the gospel. And John Bunyan says, like, I can't do that. Acts chapter 5 says, obey God rather than man. So... I cannot agree not to speak about Christ and say, okay, you'll remain in jail until you recant. The keys will be sitting right here where you can see them. You can leave anytime you'd like. He stayed there for, oh, I think it's 13 years. He refused to grab those keys and go free. And I think John Bunyan understood what God was doing in many fashions because one thing that people don't think about is John Bunyan's children. John Bunyan was recalling his family. He had a blind daughter, a little girl who was blind, who he especially loved dearly. Listen to what John Bunyan wrote. I saw that in this condition in prison, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and his children. Yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. The dearest idol I have known, whatever it may be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Abraham's son was precious to him beyond measure. But God put Abraham in such a position where he gave him no way out, no recourse, No strength. He had no power, no ability. There was nothing Abraham could do but either totally obey or totally disobey. And in obeying what Abraham demonstrated was, Oh God, I love you this much that he would not even withhold his only son. Of course, the love of the Father in the picture that's given there is obvious. But I think how good of God, how loving of God that He will take us through whatever He must to strip us of whatever idols we may have, whatever they may be. Brothers and sisters, it is no different than when Jesus told His disciples. Yes, God will probably not ask you, and let me say, let me rephrase that. He will definitely not tell you. Put your son or daughter on a physical altar. Take up a knife and slay them. 
He will not do that. But as I've shown, depending on what God calls you to do, and in our lives, in many areas, and practically speaking, in many ways, we are called by God to sacrifice everything dear to us, even our children, in order to esteem Him higher. We can have nothing on the throne above Him. And God will do whatever He must to remind us that He alone requires our absolute affection, total devotion. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in the field. A man found the treasure. He went home and sold everything that he had in order to buy the field And get the treasure. If you do not, if you cannot say with Jesus, yes, Lord, I am willing to count the cost, to take up my cross. I am, I am ready to let good and kindred go this life also in order that I would have you. Then you do not know the value of the treasure. Father, Oh, Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace and by your mercy and for your glory, that you would show us to have no other.